Welcome to Prose and Context, a podcast about life-giving teaching by the English Department at Lexington Christian Academy. Hi everyone, I'm Karen Elliott. Welcome back. Today I'd like to talk about one of my favorite novels called Too Late, The Fowler Wrote by Alan Payton. You know, Alan Payton wrote only three novels and apparently he destroyed the first one. The second is his most famous, Cry the Beloved Country, amazing book. And then his third is ridiculously painful to read, but it's so amazingly good. And it is so apropos for our students, especially as we live in and confront the tempting technological age. Although this novel takes place in South Africa post-World War II, and although it's about the other whites, the non-English Afrikaners, the original Dutch settlers of Africa's Cape, it's about good old-fashioned sin and our human nature to give into it, to hide it, to indulge in it further, and then to ask God in perverted prayer, my God, why have you forsaken me? Blame shifting, unfortunately, is nothing new. Adam did it to Eve, and then Eve did it to the devil. It seems that the first sin is biblical self-indulgence, if eating of the fruit is metaphorical. And it's the inability to want to be honest, not only with God, but each other, especially the ones we claim to love, and even with ourselves. What is new, however, is that due to technology, We don't necessarily even need to blame shift or we don't feel like we need to. With the click of a mouse or the subtle movement of our thumbs, we can open an icon, browse, and then for too many who are savvy, delete the evidence as best we can. Personally, I hear parents say a lot that they think the internet is this horrible playground. It's a great resource, but they claim that there are great intentions to use it wisely but then they see their students quickly submitting to distractions. And I mean, all of us can identify with this, right? And too often we go down these dangerous rabbit holes that, you know, we like to think it makes Lewis Carroll look like, you know, the hundred acre wood or something. We deceive ourselves into thinking this is Pooh's corner instead of, you know, Alice in Wonderland. Um, This is definitely a new realm in the age of teaching where evil can work incredibly effectively as it lodges itself into our souls like a stubborn splinter, mostly because we're hiding our indulgences with too great of ease. And then, you know, we're heading to our classrooms, our church pews, pulpits, board meetings, dinner dates, or t-ball games, all in the name of the Lord, when all the while we're headed toward destruction and maybe even to our personal hells, while unintentionally destroying our families and too often even the greater communities in which we strive to live and serve. Whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, or nothing at all, confession in the 21st century is not in our everyday vocabulary. We don't need it, we think. After all, you know, if you're born again, baptized, circumcised, or bowing upon your mat, we are all set. Plus, we've got a number of celebrities, personal growth sections of bookstores, or worse, we've got those few family members or friends from prayer group who help us rationalize our sin, because after all, you know, 
sometimes as evangelicals, we like to think it's really important to understand where the secular world is coming from, which is good. You know, we're just trying to live in the world, but most of the time, if we're honest, we really are of it. We have, or shall we say temptation has, convinced us that by understanding the other guy's point of view, that we're really leading them to the kingdom. But as the narrator of Too Late, the Fowler Rope declares, because he, the main character, did not entreat or repent, he was destroyed and we were destroyed with him. As an English teacher and a, I have such a passion for literature, I, I feel this novel is a necessary read. It convicts and reconvicts the reader. It is honestly sometimes a very uncomfortable novel. <clears throat> like the protagonist and the anti-hero, Peter, the reader can identify with the terror of being discovered when we know we've indulged way too much in some sin. And when we pray like Peter, who claims that it was another mercy that he sought, not to be saved from his sin, but from its consequence. This novel is not like Cry the Beloved Country, which nicely is characteristically Christian and accepted even at secular liberal institutions due to its African and multicultural setting and background. Too Late, the Fallow Rope is much harder to swallow. It goes deeper into the faith where many Christians are frightened to go. Peyton's characters are in fact deeply committed Christians. Their questions are not about God's existence, is he real, or whether or not he is in fact absolute truth. No, the real issue for these characters is that God is all too real or true for them. Their questions are more like, if God knew Adam and Eve would sin, why didn't he stop them? Or why does God often sit back and watch us fall on our faces? Consequently, why does God allow not only the sinner, but his whole family to be destroyed? This phrase and is a question which is repeated poetically throughout the novel as only Peyton can do until its rhetorical and bitter end. On the surface, Peyton's story is very Hawthorne-esque like the Scarlet Letter. There's the adulterer, Peter, a respected lieutenant that according to the narrator, the black people in his district thought he was like a god. However, the adulteress, Stephanie, is a youthful African native who, unlike Esther Prynne, has no remorse or desire for accountability. You know, she's a survivor in an apartheid culture, which is very oppressive, and it's continually noted during one of her many court appearances for selling liquor illegally that she often stands there, quote, smiling her secret smile, then she would think it not right to smile, or perhaps her smile had some anger or had angered someone in authority, for she would frown as though she would show respect for the law in court and show that she was not careless or indifferent. So she went between smiling and frowning with the strange innocence that made me, the narrator Peter's aunt, pity her, though innocent she could hardly be. As a result, Peyton complicates things, like when you look at this passage, because the Roger Chillingworth figure, like from Hawthorne's novel, is no longer a stock character as Hawthorne caricatured him. Peyton plants the devilish figure in all of his characters, except Peter's mother, who, even at the end, shows respect for her husband's wishes to banish not only Peter, 
their son after he's discovered, but anyone who befriends him. Instead, she displays great mercy for her endangered son and wife and their children. The novel is also written honestly because it's told through the eyes of Peter's favorite aunt, Sophie, who is apparently disfigured facially, although we're never really given the details, and who never married. She lives with her brother, Jacob, and his wife, who are caring for her and permit her to indulge their children, primarily Peter, whom she loves with sensational bias. He loves her too, and is at times overwhelmed by how much she seems to understand him, particularly his thought process. Interspersed throughout her account of Peter's inevitable downfall are selections from his diary, where he clarifies her account as though to assure the reader that although she loves him unremittedly, we can trust what she declares is mostly true. We can trust her narrative. This in and of itself is a great example of the literary technique point of view, but also how we as Christians or people of faith, or even if no faith, ironically, decide who deserves destruction by God's hand and who doesn't based on our emotions or connections towards certain individuals. Aunt Sophie continually questions, why him? But then she admits that on more than one occasion, she says, his dark face, Peter's dark face, was suddenly lit up as though there were some lamp of the soul that turned off and on, and that the light of the body is the eye, and when the eye is true, then the body full of light, but when the eye is evil, then the body is dark. Darkness and light, how they fought for his soul, and the darkness destroyed him, the gentlest and bravest of men. Here and too many other places, Sophie reminds us that no one is exempt from evil or temptation. Evil and temptation look for our weaknesses, a crack not seen by most, and then they pry it open slowly. And ironically, just like Peter, we know that this is happening, but we do nothing to stop it. Moreover, nor do those who love us the most do anything about it either. Sophie admits in the first chapter, honestly, one of my favorite first chapters of any book I've ever read, that even though Peter, quote, spoke bitter words to me because he knew she was on to him and shut the door of his soul on me and I withdrew it, but I should have cried out there not ceasing for behind it was a man in danger. And she furthers by adding that, may the Lord Jesus Christ have mercy upon me that I held peace that was no peace at all. This admittance is crucial to ponder. If we care about our brothers and sisters in Christ, then why do we let them get away with their sins in the name of Christian love? This is something we struggle with each and every day. Student leaders at a Christian school are afraid to call out their friends on partying or even language, particularly using God's name in vain. It's flabbergasting the amount of rationalization I hear from students to call anyone out on anything, particularly their closest friends who are doing clearly destructible things. We certainly don't have much difficulty with a nasty comment or a thumbs down on a post we don't like, but when it comes to anyone we declare to love, we won't even tell them they have broccoli between their teeth. And Sophie yearns to go back in time in order to call her beloved nephew and save him and her family from destruction. However, she admits with sorrow and regret that at this point she is, quote, beyond anger and loss, being as the world sees it, myself destroyed. 
Thus, this is how the novel begins, as Sophie painfully accounts all those lost moments, chances or opportunities given by God where she could have said more, done more to keep her nephew from evil's grip. All too often, my students, a family member or friends are doing the same thing, and it's difficult. Because like Sophie, I know some of their pain. We're older and experienced, but to know that the iron is hot and not warn them before they touch it, and then watch them touch it again because now they're so burnt, they're numb from the pain and destruction it's causing. To watch them do this in the name of experience, or they'll learn, according to Peyton, is a sin. It's adultery of another kind. Peyton acknowledges that even if you hold your brother or sister accountable for their sin, they might not listen. But then it becomes their problem and theirs alone. Peyton is much more probing than Hawthorne's characterization of Arthur Dimsdale. Even though Dimsdale's evolution of sin and confession ultimately destroys him, it is a romantic end as he transcends to heaven for his admittance, which for Peter does not happen. Peter never confesses. He's found out, or shall we say called out by the adulteress Stephanie, who he, quote, possesses, as Peyton so eloquently puts it more than once. It is not clear, even by the novel's end, that Peter confessed wholeheartedly to God. Yes, it is evident that he felt repentant, but only after everyone discovers his sin. In fact, it's not Peter's reaction to the accusation that is astounding. He denies it until he weeps like a child who can't hide from anyone anymore. Sadly, unlike Arthur Dimsdale, who feels freedom from his confession and acceptance for God to kill him, hold him accountable, and take him to heaven, Peter's instinct upon forced confession is to kill himself. And it's the reactions of his friends, Cappy, who is Jewish, and the captain, Peter's seemingly aloof boss, that are the most compelling. Cappy seems to know Peter best, and he firmly and out of custom for the culture and time period declares, in God's name and in the name of your Lord Jesus Christ, put down that revolver. Here, he acknowledges that Peter has no right to condemn himself and take his worldly or eternal damnation into his own hands. And similarly, the captain, who appears a rather cryptic figure, but one whom Peter admires, understands even his own responsibility in the matter, which furthers Peyton's argument that we need to be watchful of ourselves and our friends, for we all go down together. When Peter finally admits, although unwillingly, of his adultery, and the penalty of interracial adultery at that time was death, the captain recognizes his own infraction. He admits that he recalled a moment when Peter wanted to confide in him, but he dismissed it. Then, as Peyton wrote, the captain went to him and put his hand on his shoulder and said to him, there are terrible things to come, but I'll stand by you, by all of you, and do what I can do. <clears throat> After this moving declaration in which the reader is cheering, he then condemns Sar Sergeant Stein, who anxiously and ultimately is the one who reveals Peter's sin out of envy and self-promotion. The captain proclaims to him, May God forgive you for an evil deed. Here, Peyton warns us that when we do call out a brother or sister, our intentions better be Christ-centered and pure. This, however, is, isn't really what drives the narrative. It's Peter's conflicting feelings, which are so painful and so real. It's hard to read this book because any old 
or young adult understands Peter's desire to redeem himself. Despite our sin, it's too embarrassing to reveal, no matter how big or small. And yes, Peter has committed adultery, and although Nella, his wife, doesn't get him, and that their marriage could be a little more ideal than the reader would like, he does admit that it's him. It's really not her. Peyton illustrates what happens to us when we sin and continually attempt to redeem ourselves as we avoid confession, repentance, and God. The Dutch call it the black mood and how it affects Peter and Nella's marriage as she does not know what he's done. Aunt Sophie explains that even though they had a great evening beforehand, she says the black mood returned and they, Peter and Nella, quarreled again over some foolish thing. Therefore, she sat in misery, not knowing what could be done and wishing she were back again with her parents, safe with her mother and father and her children with a safer kind of love. Wow, here it is evident that Nella is aware that her husband is struggling deeply, but because he believes he can redeem himself, his inability to rely on God causes the evolution of his own destruction as well as his marriage, family, and friendships. Peyton shows us that sin is not just about us. It's about everyone we love. It's unavoidable that it can and will affect others. Like Shakespeare's imagery throughout Hamlet, Peter's sin is much like the poison, which becomes a recurring symbol for Shakespeare in more than one of his plays. Sin, once imbibed, infects, spreads, and destroys. And in the case of Hamlet, it destroys an entire country, not unlike South Africa's bloody past. Similarly, Peyton shows us that although the law itself of interracial relations might appear unfair and unjust, and it is, <clears throat> this is really not the main issue of the novel, nor the rhetorical question of which Peyton focuses. The issue, therefore, is continually exploited in the craft and poetry of Alan Peyton's literary technique, so that it, like Peter's sin, infects and convicts us. The novel's point is about the terrible knowledge of himself, which lay in him darkly and heavily and took away his laughter and the laughter of his wife. And he went to his work darkly and heavily, and he came back darkly and heavily and played with his children in the bath because that was his habit. But his wife could hear and see that it was not the same. Here and too many other places, Peyton reminds his reader that because we cannot redeem ourselves, our sin cannot be hidden from others, even if they are not sure what eternal problems lie deep within our souls and just under our facades. Consequently, the novel makes being inside Peter's self-conscience painful and difficult. We, like him, know the inevitable end, and yet we still attempt to control our sin. Peyton furthers that this, too, is not only ridiculous, but dangerous. Without confession and accountability, we'll continue, eventually, to log on to that vicious website, compare ourselves brutally, drink more than we should, covet other people's gifts and talents, gossip, lust, swear, idolize achievement, or carry out the sin that is within us because we can't bear ourselves or bear to fess up to God. Consequently, we all walk throughout our lives, as Peyton says, half with comfort and half with fear. And like Peter, who vowed and prayed and prayed and vowed, Peyton argues that without God's loving control over ourselves and our desires, which we willingly forsake, we, like Peter, find ourselves almost searching for opportunities to sin even more 
And as Peter confesses to the reader in his diary, he admits that it was my purpose made in prayer to keep the law, but it was her purpose, for what reason I do not know, to break the law. And I carried out her purpose, and not my own, which was made in prayer. Here, Peyton reinforces that without confession and accountability and the forbearance to repent and live with whatever consequences there might be, we will not carry out the purposes of God, no matter how great the intention or how hard we try or even pray. We annihilate ourselves. We destroy more than one person. We mock the sacrifice if we cannot kneel at the foot of the cross. As a result, we heretically convince ourselves that we are beyond saving. We go deeper into the world to find the answer as Peter, quote, thought of seeing one of those psychiatrists who might tell him some secret of salvation, for he had no more trust in his own power nor any trust in that he could, if he wanted, find the secret of God's power. This admission in particular is frightening and all too true. Once we forsake Christ and his divinity, the logical conclusion is to make ourselves divine. We seek the salvation but attempt to recreate it so we don't have to bow down to the one who already paid for it. Sadly, this seems easy to do when we live in an age where we can quite literally make ourselves an icon and hide behind our posts on the global web. And Peyton's very powerfully written, Too Late the Fallow Rope, sickeningly convicts us that God is omniscient and omnipresent, and he cares enough to expose us eventually. Not because he seeks to destroy us, but because we are unwilling, he is willing to destroy what keeps us from an intimate and eternal relationship with him and more peaceful and loving interactions and relationships with our friends and family. Thank you so much for joining me again today. Um, there's a transcript with a bibliography available for you and um, I look forward to spending more time with you in the future as we continue to explore what it means to wrestle with our faith in literature. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Prose and Context, a podcast for life-giving teaching by the English Department at Lexington Christian Academy. Please subscribe to our podcast and come back again next week.